0: A little song that will be familiar to all of you as we begin our look at Scripture this morning. So, I hope it doesn't put you to sleep, but you'll know it straight away.
1: And now the end is near, and so I face this is not my resignation. Okay. The final curtain, my that's friend. Prayer, that's I'll say it clear. each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it
0: my way. Before you all start breaking out in chorus, I thought I'd finish it there. Well, what's this got to do with the book of James? Well, if you just take that last uh, set of words there at the top, I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway. We're going to come back and reflect on this in a moment. But for now, let's just commit our time to the Lord as we look at Scripture together. Father, we thank you that in your word we find ourselves reflected again and again. These stories of antiquity, 2,000 years old, but they are alive and well today. Well for us to be able to be challenged and changed and to realign our thinking with what is your purpose for our lives? So I just want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you would you would come and speak to us today through your Word. In Jesus' name, we pray. Well, as most of you will know, there are a lot of a lot of verses to this song, and uh, it's a very very popular song. Of course, um, Frank Sinatra sung it. You know the place that I hear it the most these days. Funeral. Yeah, yeah. Uh, funerals that, where people aren't Christians, uh, but more often than not, it's a, it's a man's funeral and uh, the casket's taken out. At the end of the funeral, and I've heard this song sung a few times or played a few, a few times there, and it's a complete contradiction to what it is that we as a Christian should be having sung at our funeral. And James is going to speak very, very strongly today into this whole thing of us doing it our way. So, so let's have a look at what James has to say in chapter 4. James says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then you, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Whew. That's pretty tough, isn't it? You know, James is really digging here, not digging a hole, but digging a well, a well of understanding for us as Christians to be able to say to ourselves, ask ourselves, I should say, am I doing the Lord's will or am I doing my own will? Is this God's way or am I doing it my way? Okay, my way. And the thing about this is that I think it's particularly pertinent for New Zealanders. Now, you might have heard me describe this before, but we know where New Zealand is geographically, right? Right at the bottom end of the world. We quite like it there. We sort of seem to be out of way of anybody else's problems or confusion, and uh, we get on with our own own thing. But because every person in New Zealand has chosen to be here, either somebody within this generation who's chosen to be here, or previous generations have landed here, um, there's something within our collective DNA which wants something better, wants something for ourselves, so when we look at the, the great migration of Māori from Hawaiiki, the great canoes, Te Arawa, Kurahopo, Mata Atua, Takitimu and others who landed on our shores, these tribes that landed 900 years ago, they say. These folks left looking for a better place. And the same it is with my relations and yours. Uh, my first first of my ancestors to arrive here arrived in the area of Taranaki in 1847. And so others have come... In later periods of the nineteenth century, and for some of you, you've landed in the great chip Boeing Seven Four Seven or Airbus Three Eighty. Uh, how many of you have chosen to do that? You weren't born in New Zealand, but you've, you're here now. Cool, cool. You carry the same DNA, and every Kiwi carries this DNA. It's an adventurous spirit that says, "I want more for my life than what the local village provides, or this city, or this town." or this political situation in the country that I'm in at the moment. That's fair to say. We can can agree on that, can't we? Because we've all come from somewhere, and because there was no one here 900 years ago, we collectively share something that is quite special and quite unique. But there's a price to pay for that. And that is a rugged individualism. A rugged individualism which says... When we come to my final days and they're going to sing a song at my funeral, they're going to sing a song called I Did It My Way. Why? Because deep down within my DNA, I want to carve my own track. I want to cut my own track. I want to make it my own way. I want to make it about me taking and seizing the opportunities that I have been given. And this is very admirable and we like to be able to celebrate, if you like, That uh, rugged individualism, you know, epitomised by people like, uh, who am I going to say? Edmund Hillary, classic example of that, you know. And and, and we as New Zealanders like the fact that we can take on the best of the world and punch above our weight economically, socially, sports field, politically, and we live in in a very blessed society as a result of that. But there is a price to pay. And this is what James is challenging us about. He's saying you can do it your way or you can do it God's way. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go this or to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And then vanishes. I don't know about your life, but my life has had lots of unexpected turns. How many of you are doing life now as you envisaged it, as you had a vision for it, when you were, say, 13, 14, or 15? You had a career in mind, and you're still, still doing that. Can anybody say, yep, I'm doing what I expected to be doing? one <laughs> okay two yeah yeah this isn't a crime don't worry this isn't it isn't a game it's not trying to prove it prove a point other than God moves in mysterious ways and uh, how many of you have had challenges in your life where your relationships have failed your health has failed and uh, you find that the picture that you had in your mind of how your life could be or should be lived has been completely shattered and you've had to rebuild that yeah yeah lots of people like that eh? yeah me too Lots of different ways. The other side of the story, of course, is positive. There's some things that come into your life and they just really blow you away. An amazing blessing has come into your life. And it just completely turns your life upside down in a positive way. Have have any of you had that experience as well? Yeah, I got married. Yeah. (laughs) What about Lou down the road here? Lou Gates. uh, Lou Tukiti, his name is now. Uh, the the Komatu down here at Ngati Kahumarai won 10 million bucks this time last year. There was a little article in the paper yesterday about how he's spending his money. You know, um, these sorts of things happen and, and lives change. But what James is saying to us is that we can't determine the future of our lives to the degree that we would like to. To the degree that we would like to. And we're never in control of our lives to the degree that we would like to be able to think we are because of all these different things. And so that's why James says, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. God is saying, I'm going to help you take your one and only life and I'm going to have you live it well. I'm going to have you live it well. You don't live a life and then get reincarnated. It's appointed that man should live once and die and then face judgment face the Lord. So we take this one life that we're given, and we use it well. But to use it well, we've got to submit it to the goodness of God. And that means that we've got to get rid of this rugged individualism, which says, I'm going to do it my way. Come hell or high water, or any other person for that matter, I'm going to dig in and do what I want to do. And everybody else is going to have to pay the price for that. So as Christians, we're called to maintain a a posture of humility when it comes to the things that we're called to do. Be it uh, success or challenge, we always need to ask God to come into the midst of this challenging situation and say, God, I've got a plan. I know how this could work, but I'm going to submit this plan to you. There are times when I've played, not played, prayed with the music team. And I can remember these times when we all pray together and we'll say, Lord, we all know how to play these instruments. But we want you to be a part of this. We want you to help us in all that we do. And so many of you in your workplaces are very, very skilled at what you do. You've trained for this. You've got years and years of experience under all of this. And therefore, it's very easy just to say, hey, man, God, take a break. I got this covered. All right? I got this covered. But each one of us to call cool, what James says here, is to put our lives in a place where it's submitted to God so that he gets the final say and he gets the ultimate glory for this. Um, to, to come to this realization that your life is not your own is a, a really, really big transition in your life. And for me, it was a part of that born again experience that I had when I became a Christian is to realize that my life is not for, for, for me to determine And as much as I had to surrender my life to God. Now, when we talk about surrendering our lives to God, it's very easy to have this image or this impression of God that he's going to to finally get you. You know, he's got you good. And, And you go, oh, I'll give you my life, Jesus. I know you're going to send me to Siberia. I'll be a missionary with a team of huskies. Whoa, can't wait. That's not the will of God to have that attitude. So often when we find our lives aligning with the will of God, we actually find a liberty and a freedom and an excitement about life that uh, just reminds us that we should never have argued in the first place. Now, finding the will of God for your life, I think it's in two ways it happens. Um, firstly, there are natural talents that you are given. I made reference in the first service to to Darren, who leads our music team, and... Um, Darren was born with the ability to hold a note, to play a musical instrument, and to pull people together to do the same. So he has this natural gift and a natural tendency towards this sort of work, and so we celebrate that with him. Others of you have got fantastic skills with people. You know, So you might be counselling, you might be in the medical industry, you might find yourself as a nurse or a doctor doing different things that require uh, high levels of knowledge and skill integrated together okay uh, you might find yourself teaching maths at school because you've got that ability to do so you might be really good at sports and so you can teach sport and recreation you might be really good at engineering so you love building things you might be great at as being a mum and you just want to celebrate every step of your children's life etc etc all of these things can come from a natural part of your life but then there's this this will of God that is thrown in there, which can take the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And this is where I fit in. Okay. (laughs) Actually, I just remembered, uh, I remember the first year or two when I was preaching and we used to meet in the hall, I was talking about how God wants to take the best that we have and give it away. And I said, you know, think about how it is that we raise our children and uh, we say to them, you should be an engineer or you should be an sp- astronaut or, a, or something. I said, we've got to encourage our children to also be pastors. Give the best away. And somebody came up to me afterwards and said, Craig, I don't necessarily agree with, with that. To give our best away to become pastors is not what God would want. And I said, why would you not want that? And, he said, and the lady said, well, if that's the case, we'll never end up with someone like you. Okay, that's all right. So um, God works on your humility, (laughs) wherever, wherever you might be. But your life is not your own. And so we find ourselves often arguing with God, particularly about who's the boss. Do you find that? I find that. God's, you know, this challenge is going on all the time. Who's the boss? You or God? Remember what James said in chapter one, verse one, he introduces himself to the churches throughout the region, as James, a bond servant. A bond servant. A bond servant is somebody who's been a servant in somebody's house to fulfill an obligation, maybe a debt. Uh, And once that has been filled, instead of taking their freedom and going and working somewhere else, they say, look, I'm going to be a bond slave. I'm going to be a bond servant. I'm going to commit my life with my free will to the work of your household. So James says he's a bondservant. And so this has set the bar, set the picture of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, according to James, to be bondservants. And uh, to be a bondservant means that you hold on to this place of humility. It's God's way first. So James says, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. You go, whoa. I thought we only get judged on sins of commission, the things that we do do. James is saying, nah, uh, uh. you can be in trouble for the things you don't do if you know you ought to do it, but you don't. Okay? Some of you heard the story when it happened maybe 10 years ago now, but I was in Waikato Hospital with somebody just, ta- um, just taking a day visit, and I went, to the, sitting, went and sat in the reception area. And I was there on my own, and there was a lady who was a receptionist there. Now, that's all perfectly normal. But what had happened is, in the week leading up to going to the hospital, when I was praying, I just felt this really strong urge that I should take a box of chocolates, you know, those roses, chocolates. And I thought, well, if that's not the flesh speaking to me, well, you know, then I, I know what I know what the devil looks like. A box of roses, chocolates, yeah, that's all I need. Um, but it was a strong impression, and I just totally ignored it. Um... But anyway, I was in the reception, reading a magazine, and I started chatting to the receptionist, and then another nurse came in, and she says, how are you doing today? She goes, oh, not having a really very good day at all. She goes, oh, why is that? She says, oh, it's my birthday today, but no one cares. I was like, oh, Oh, man, you know, and I realized if I'd had that box of chocolates in my bag or something like that, I could have told her my story about God prompting me to bring a box of chocolates. I just felt like a, an absolute idiot for, for a week. It still bothers me even as I tell you now, you know? What a great opportunity for her to have experienced something of the, the love of God in a really simple but divine way. And I was, I was thinking to myself, what is it about trying to live this life in obedience to God? It's not always these huge things. We'll talk about those in a moment. But it's the little things. And I realized that, just this last week, maybe God was sort of setting me up for this talk, but um, I was over at Mount Monganui, and I was coming back along Hull Road, and as I was going down that big long stretch there, I saw an elderly guy, would have been at least 80 years old, maybe older, pushing his mobility scooter. He'd obviously run out of juice, or no one had told him how to use it, I don't know. <clears throat> so I did a U-turn and came up beside him, just as somebody else came out of a shop that would seen the predicament that he was in. And so we had a quick little chat, and the guy says, i got it covered. I know somebody around the corner here who can plug one of these in to get it going again. So he was fine. But that's one of those little scenarios where you, you know, I would have driven home, I would have felt really bad if I hadn't stopped and done a U-turn. You know, everybody's busy. Everybody's busy, we know that. And you're told to mind your own business these days, but I couldn't not turn around. Uh, Then just later this week, Um, At home, we'd run out of uh, coffee and milk and a few other bits and pieces, and this was in the evening, and I said to Michaela, I said, look, I'll I'll go to the shop and and get these, and um, so that's no big deal, no drama there, but as I was preparing to go out the door, I just had this prompting that I should go to the Omokuroa supermarket. Now, we live out Quarry Road, it's still way shorter to come into countdown here, and I'd never been to the Omokuroa supermarket before. And so I drove off, and I thought, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'll do it anyway. First time I've ever been there. So, you know, it's like you're going to a supermarket the first time. You don't know where anything is. Some of you men don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But us more culturally refined, sensitive New Age guys do. Um, So I'm walking up and down the supermarket aisle, and I hear, Craig, Craig. And I turn around, and it's an old mate from school. And uh, we used to play rugby together, and and Paul and I uh, became Christians about the same time. And uh, he's had a pretty up and down sort of run. You know, we we catch up very, very irregularly, more often in situations like this. And uh, I sort of thought, oh, this is interesting. And I said to Paul, I said, hey, Paul, do you know that on Labour Weekend this year, there's a Taronga Boys College reunion? And he goes, oh, really? And I said, you know, what do you think about us going? He says, yeah, that'd be really cool. We could sort of like go together and then if there's no one else our age there, we could talk to each other. I said, you got it, <laughs> you know, and, um, and so we made a decision that we would catch up and go to this reunion together. No big deal, really, but an opportunity to renew an old friendship and maybe encourage someone in the faith. Then I get to the checkout and there's a young lady there. She's a teenager and she goes, I know you, you're the pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church. Me and my mum, we go to your church, and this is Hannah. I don't know if she's here today, probably not, probably working. I said, Hannah, how? eh? Your mum is. Oh, thank you. It's Jane, isn't it? Thanks, Jane. So I was talking to Hannah, and uh, I said, how often do you work? At the shop, and she goes, oh, three, four, five times a week." I says, "Oh, that's a big commitment for someone who's taught school." She goes, "Yeah, I'm saving up my money because I'm going to go to visit the Ruel Orphanage in the Philippines. It's one of the one of the uh, orphanages that we sponsor here through uh, various number of people that we support." And I said, um, "I said, have you been before?" And she goes, "Yeah, I have. A couple of years ago, I went up, and I thoroughly enjoyed it." I said, "I'll tell you what." I said, I was in Darwin just three weeks ago and I ran into a guy, him and his wife have just gone and adopted two older kids out of the orphanage. And, uh, and I said, their name's Patrick and Rachel. She goes, Patrick and Rachel. She said, I spent all my time with Patrick and Rachel when I was up there last time because they're older kids, they're about 10, 11, 12 years old. And so it's very hard for them to get adopted because people like, obviously, younger kids, less chance of less problems, more chance of less problems. Um, And so I said, oh, look, the the parents, when I spoke to them, were absolutely blown away by how well these kids have settled in. They've got friends. They're learning the language really well. They're doing really well at school. And uh, for this young girl, she was just really, really encouraged by that. And so, you know, I, I get in the car and I'm thinking... That was cool. That was strange. That was cool. And then the phone goes. It's Michaela. How long does it take to get a bottle of milk? <laughs> <laughs> so I was worried about you. I said, That's nice, honey. I'm just doing the Lord's work. <laughs> hey? You like that? So we have choices, don't we? My way versus God's way. The biggest challenge that we face in New Zealand is that we are very blessed. Financially. Emotionally. You know, we've got good support around us, even if things are going hard for us. Uh, Our health. We have a fantastic health system. And therefore, our default setting is that we can help ourselves. I did it my way. And... This is where I think it takes a great deal of maturity to actually be a Christian. As you get on in years and you sort of, in the, the typical sort of Western fashion, you, you accumulate resources as you get older and you find yourself in less need of that immediacy of God. I, I know when, you know, first, first married, first child, one income, big mortgage, you know, it was like, Lord, give us this day our daily bread today. You know, today, help me pay this electricity bill before the power gets cut off sort of thing. And and yet as time moves on, uh, those immediacies aren't quite that immediate. And so we find ourselves drifting into this level of independence where I can make my own plans and, you know, God's going to have to sort of provide a Mack truck to intercept those plans because I haven't got those spiritual ears on as much as I should have or could have or did once have. And that's a real challenge for us, because my way or God's way is an ongoing challenge for every part of our lives. And you know, now we we became grandparents a while ago, but I've had this conversation about becoming a grandparent with a few people in recent times, and I remember particularly having this conversation with David Pierce, who's part of the uh, No Longer Music Ministry in Europe. Uh, David speaks here. Uh, probably every year to us, and uh, he's part of a band that plays in secular clubs or outdoor venues and really makes a huge appeal for the gospel. Fantastic ministry. Uh, Remember, Dave, he's got the dreadlocks. He's 65 years old, looks 35. That's, That's what happens when you're in the will of God, eh? God looks after you. But David said to me one day over lunch, he says, oh, you know, I'm getting a little bit of pressure now about slowing down. And I said, why is that? He says, well, we've got a couple of grandchildren. I said, yeah. And he, and he says, yeah, so people are saying, you need to be able to slow down a little bit, allow your grandchildren to see you. And I said, yeah, I've heard all this before. And uh, I said, but there's a reverse to that, David. I said, the reverse is this, is that people tell you that you should see your grandchildren, but the reverse is your grandchildren need to see you. Doing ministry. Passionate at your age, for the lost, the youth of this, of this culture of today. And, and we talked about that. And then 12 months later, he comes and we catch up again. And uh, he said, look, that was just so helpful. And I'm like, oh, that's good. Nice to be used occasionally. But my way or God's way, we have to be so careful that we just don't get into this, this groove of um, just following everybody else's example. Again, when I was up in Darwin going out on the road, the highways there, um, travelling 200k's from Darwin itself to where this venue was where we had had these meetings. And I couldn't believe the traffic on the road. Every third car without any stretch or exaggeration, every third vehicle was either a camper van or a four-wheel drive towing a big trailer. They do this very well in Australia. And I said to the pastor there, I said to, to Malcolm, I said, hey... What's with all these camper vans? Is there a convention on or something? And he goes, no, nah, those are the grey nomads. The grey nomads. And they all move north during the winter because it's warmer up there. And he said, it's such a phenomenon that our economy even depends upon it. You know, there are all these different places where you can park and spend your time. And uh, I was thinking, you know, we, we're, given this, we're given this stage of life because of the, uh, what would you say, all the improvements of our life. You know, if we rolled the clock back 100 years, if you hit 60, 65, you'd done really well. You know, you were blessed. But now, statistically, I read this last year, I'll get this right, If, as a male, if you hit the age of 65, you have an 85% chance of hitting 86, All right? If you hit 65, you have an 85% chance of hitting 86. Now, I don't know where that came from, Europe or something like that, I don't know, but I thought that was pretty cool. So what I'm saying here is we've got this third age that people talk about, and it's an age of being very, very productive. And I think it's an age that we should all be taking seriously, as, as uh, particularly amongst you folks who are heading into that direction, is to say, what can I do with this third age? Do I just sit around and, you know, watch sport on TV? You know, we talk about finding the will of God. You know, and talk about unexpected things happen. Who would have thought that England would be in the semi-finals of the, of the World <laughs> Cup for soccer. You know, Argentina's gone, Brazil's gone, Germany's gone, Spain's gone. Eh? And they're playing Croatia in the semi-final for, for the final. Who would have thought that? Eh? The English, the churches will be filled. A miracle is happening in the land of England. But what do we do with this third age? We don't want to just sit there and become an expert on football every four years or the Rugby World Cup every two years after that, okay? We don't want to watch other people's lives being lived on television or Facebook. We've got to take seriously the fact that we have these ages and stages of life, and it's in these significant transition points of life, from leaving school, working out your education, uh, choosing the right person to, to marry if God provides that for you, how do we raise our children, our career, maybe stages where we might shift city or town or country, and and then, of course, our retirement. What do we do with that? How do we take this one and only life that we have and spend it well? Well, this is a proverb that's often quoted at young people, but it's so true for all ages. There's no age disclaimer on this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways submit to him, and he will make your paths straight there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Okay? We're talking spiritual death. And there was a way going past Darwin that must be right to everybody for all these grey nomads heading in one direction. And then as the seasons turn, they go back this way because it's too hot up in Darwin. But that must get pretty monotonous after a while unless you have a higher purpose. Now, I've like you, you'll probably run into people who love to get out and about and travel, and they do things like mobile missionary maintenance, you know, a group of people get around and they get in their camper vans and they go and help people and, and they move on from there and do something else, do some other projects. So all these things are possible, I just cite that as one I know. But James then, and this is where we're going to run out of time. I've bitten off more than I can chew today. But James then takes another really big 90-degree turn here and he starts to address a group of people that have been giving grief to the church. Okay, now this is written in a context, so I'll explain that in a minute, but let's read it. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Now, the commentators who study these things for weeks and months and years say that this is addressing a unique scenario that's happening in the church somewhere where wealthy people who are claiming some level of faith, because this is, this is a letter addressed to the church, uh, taking their wealth and using it as power over other people. And you can see it there. They're not paying wages for those who are working for them. Okay, So James is saying to them, uh, second to last line there, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Okay, So in other words, uh, you know, trouble's coming for you. All right, so... We know that uh, wealth is not a sin, but it can be a trap. And it can be a trap because it creates a barrier between us and the real world around us. And we might feel in our wealth that we are immune from other things, but the way that we live our lives can cause grief and misery for others. And that's what James is remarking on here. Be really careful how you use your wealth. Uh, Furthermore, Timothy says, for the love of money... Is a root of all kinds of evils. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's very easy in our independence, our financial independence, to wander from the faith. Oh, I don't need that. I'm sorted. I'm sorted. I pay my health insurance. You know, we're good. Jesus loves me. I love Jesus. And separate yourself from the body of Christ. But um, the challenge here. Is that it's the love of money. It's not money. Money isn't evil. Money is neutral. Money is just a means of exchange. It's the love of money that's the problem. Okay? And most of us would love some more, but, you know, it's the love of money. And so we are told by James don't use your wealth as power. Don't use your wealth to manipulate people. Don't set up systems which allow you to control things as opposed to. Um, giving away power and walking in humility. Uh, Proverbs says, "Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God." That's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, you know, we can take what we've given, what we're blessed with, and we can use that to serve other people as God directs us. And then I'll just finish on this because I'm rushing through a little bit here. But uh, wealth used wisely will extend Christ's influence. There's a there's a real challenge with having money. Um, it's easier to be lacking resources, if you want. It sounds a bit simple, simplistic, but let me put it this way. If somebody would come to somebody who's just sort of praying that prayer of, Lord, give me daily bread, and they don't have any extra resources, when someone comes and says, can you help with this project, or these people are suffering, or this is a great idea, extend the kingdom of God, can you help financially? If you've got no money, you go, no. Nah. Do you need to pray about that? No. Nah. Okay, um, unless you want to create an overdraft, which isn't the wisest thing to do. But if you've got resources and you've got resources left over and people come to you and they say, hey, God's in on this, can you help here? And then the week or a month later, it's followed up by another request and another request. The challenge is that you know you have the means to help, but what is God saying to you? That is, that is a challenge because there are obviously projects and people who could do with the financial help. How you make a decision as to how you help is a really, really difficult thing. And it takes quite a lot of maturity to be able to make good decisions about where wealth can be used to leverage in ways that can help build the kingdom, help the poor and the oppressed. So don't ever think that just having a few extra dollars is going to make life easier. There's a responsibility that comes with that as well. So I'm going to finish there, um, because I've more than, more than consumed our time today. But um, let's stand as the music team come out, and we'll pray. Father, we come before you as people who know we're, we live in a blessed country. But we also are people who carry a, a DNA, Lord, a, a sense of self-sufficiency that has caused us as a nation to punch above our weight. And we take great pride in people who exemplify, who demonstrate this. But for that reason, Lord, we pay a price of being rugged individuals, people who feel that we can just do it our own way and, God, we don't need you, we got it covered. But, Lord, I just want to pray that we can take what James has said and make it our own prayer. That we can say, Lord, if it is your will, this is what I will do. Show me, guide me, confirm for me, or push back on this plan in a way that allows me to invite you into all the details of my life. Lord, we, we do require more humility, that posture, that pose, of being able to just lean back into you rather than lean into our own strengths. And to do so, Lord... Um, we need the help of each other. And we need the help of your Spirit, the help of your Word to remind us. So God, I just want to pray for people, particularly those now going through times of transition, that uh, you would prompt them to pause and to really seek you. To say, Lord, here's an opportunity for you to be able to speak into our lives and we want you to do that because above all, our life is not our own. So God, thank you that you promised never to forsake us, never to abandon us. And in these times of transition and change where we might even be surprised by the circumstances we're in, we can lean on you and invite you in such a way that give us the peace that surpasses all understanding, that guides us in all the ways of your kingdom. So we commit ourselves afresh to you, Lord, that we would be people of your book, people who hear your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name.